The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 101, a psalm of David. I will sing of mercy and justice. To you, O Lord, I will sing praises. I will behave wisely in a perfect way. Oh, when will you come to me? I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall depart from me. I will not know wickedness. Whoever secretly slanders his neighbor, him I will destroy. The one who has a haughty look and a proud heart, him I will not endure. My eyes shall be on the faithful of the land, that they may dwell with me. He who walks in a perfect way, he shall serve me. He who works deceit shall not dwell within my house. He who tells lies shall not continue in my presence. Early I will destroy all the wicked of the land, that I may cut off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord. Okay, now, we are in Deuteronomy 29, verses 20 through 29. This will finish up this chapter. This is entitled, The Secret Things. The Lord would not spare him, for then the anger of the Lord and his jealousy would burn against that man. And every curse that is written in this book would settle on him, and the Lord would blot out his name from under heaven. And the Lord would separate him from all the tribes of Israel for adversity. According to all the curses of the covenant that are written in this book of the law, so that the coming generation of your children who rise up after you and the foreigner who comes from a far land would say, when they see the plagues of that land and the sicknesses which the Lord has laid on it, the whole land is brimstone, salt, and burning. It is not sown, nor does it bear, nor does any grass grow there like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and his wrath. All nations would say, why has the Lord done so to this land? What does the heat of this great anger mean? Then people would say, because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. For they went and served other gods and worshiped them, gods that they did not know, and that he had not given to them. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against this land to bring on it every curse that is written in this book. And the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger, in wrath, and in great indignation, and cast them into another land as it is this day. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. In our Leviticus 26, 14 through 39 sermon, entitled Assured Curses, we open with the words of Mark Twain, who confirmed the words of cursing that were laid upon Israel the people and Israel the land. It is right to revisit those words in order to understand and remember the truth of what is now presented in the book of Deuteronomy. Mark Twain from the book Innocence Abroad. Palestine sits in sackcloth and ashes. Now remember, this is just a little over, what, 150 years ago? Okay, he went and he toured all of Paul's journeys and he went into the, 
the Holy Land and he started at Dan and he went down to Beersheba and everywhere in between and he documented the number of people there, what their people groups were, etc. What you're being told in the world today is not at all true. Please believe me on this. He was a great chronicler and he chronicled accurately. Over it broods the spell of a curse that has withered its fields and fettered its energies where Sodom and Gomorrah reared their domes and towers. That solemn sea now floods the plain in whose bitter waters no living thing exists, over whose waveless surface the blistering air hangs motionless and dead, about whose borders nothing grows but weeds and scattering tufts of cane and that treacherous fruit that promises refreshment to parching lips but turns to ashes at the touch. Nazareth is forlorn, about that fort of Jordan where the hosts of Israel entered the promised land with songs of rejoicing, one finds only a squalid camp of fantastic Bedouins of the desert. Jericho, the accursed, lies a moldering ruin today, even as Joshua's miracle left it more than 3,000 years ago. Bethlehem and Bethany, in their poverty and their humiliation, have nothing about them now to remind one that they once knew the honor the high honor of the Savior's presence, the hallowed spot where the shepherds watched their flocks by night and where the angels sang peace on earth, goodwill to men, is untenanted by any living creature and unblessed by any feature that is pleasant to the eye. Renowned Jerusalem itself, the stateliest name in history, has lost all of its ancient grandeur and has become a pauper village the riches of Solomon are no longer there to compel the admiration of visiting Oriental queens. The wonderful temple, which was the pride and the glory of Israel, is gone. And the Ottoman crescent is lifted above the spot where, on that most memorable day in the annals of the world, they reared the Holy Cross. The noted Sea of Galilee, where Roman fleets once rode at anchor, and the disciples of the Savior sailed in their ships was long ago deserted by the devotees of war and commerce, and its borders are a silent wilderness. Capernaum is a shapeless ruin. Magdala is the home of beggared Arabs. Bethsaida and Chorazin have vanished from the earth, and the desert places round about them where thousands of men once listened to the Savior's voice and ate the miraculous bread, sleep in the hushed of a solitude that is inhabited only by birds of prey and skulking foxes. Palestine is desolate and unlovely. And why should it be otherwise? Can the curse of the deity beautify a land? Mark Twain, 1869. Now it's the jewel of the entire Middle East in just, just a short amount of time and only since 1948 when the Jews went back and sacrificed their lives in order to reestablish what had been laid waste, just as the Bible says. Our text verse comes from Lamentations 5. The joy of our heart has ceased. Our dance is turned into mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. Because of this, our heart is faint. Because of these things, our eyes grow dim. Because of Mount Zion, which is desolate, with foxes walking about on it. You, O Lord, remain forever. Your throne from generation to generation. Why do you forget us and forsake us for so long a time? Turn us back to you, O Lord, and we will be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and are very angry with us. 
Of our passage today, the Jameson Fawcett Brown commentary states the following, somewhat mirroring the thoughts of Mark Twain. The picture of a once rich and flourishing region, blasted and doomed in consequence of the sins of its inhabitants, is very striking and calculated to awaken awe in every reflecting mind. Such is, and long has been, the desolate state of Palestine. And in looking at its ruined cities, its blasted coast, its naked mountains, its sterile and parched soil, all the sad and unmistakable evidences of a land lying under a curse, numbers of travelers from Europe, America, and the Indies, strangers from a far country, in the present day, see that the Lord has executed his threatening. Who can resist the conclusion that it has been inflicted because the inhabitants had forsaken the covenant? of the Lord God of their fathers. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against this land to bring upon it all the curses that are written in this book. The tragedy of Israel's past after their years of glory was clearly prophesied by Moses. Nothing can be more evident from his words of this passage. But even though the reason for the first exile was understood by them, meaning the Jews, having been acknowledged in their own writings, The reason for the second exile appears to be some sort of a mystery to them, as if it somehow is an aberration that never should have happened. However, they were clearly told before that exile came, meaning the Roman exile, by Jesus and by his apostles, exactly what was needed to keep them from the disasters that they have faced. Their stubborn refusal to acknowledge Christ as Lord has brought, and will continue to bring, upon them many woes. The word is written, the land was given to Israel. In their disobedience, they were to be exiled and chased throughout the world. This is the word of the Lord, and it is the guiding document concerning the state of Israel in the world at any given time. Was the second exile of Israel an aberration? Obviously not. But if it was not, there had to be a reason that it came about. And if there is a reason, the word certainly includes what it is. And it does. Because they have not yet acknowledged what brought it about, it means that troubled times are still ahead for them. They must be brought through the refiner's fire in order to make them a people once again prepared for the Lord. When that happens, the Lord, their Lord, will return to them. The secret things indeed belong to the Lord. But those things the Lord has revealed belong to his people. All they need to do is to search them out and they will find Jesus. In him alone is found salvation for every soul, and in him alone is found the salvation of Israel. Great things, such as coming to Jesus to be saved, are to be found in his superior word. And so let us turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first and only thought today is every curse that is written in this book. For context, and because the words to come are based on the words that completed the previous sermon, the last verses from last week need to be reviewed. He said in Deuteronomy 29, 14 through 19, I make this covenant and this oath not with you alone, but with him who stands here with us today before the Lord our God, as well as with him who is not here with us today. 
For you know that we dwelt in the land of Egypt, and that we came through the nations which you passed by, and you saw their abominations and their idols which were among them, wood and stone and silver and gold, so that there may not be among you man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turns away from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of these nations, and that there may not be among you a root bearing bitterness or wormwood. And so it may not happen when he hears the words of this curse that he blesses himself in his heart saying, I shall have peace even though I follow the dictates of my heart as though the drunkard could be included with the sober. With this understood as the immediate context, Moses now explains what the consequences for such an unacceptable attitude will be for this person saying, verse 20, the Lord would not spare him. The words refer to the person who follows the dictates of his own heart, rejecting the words of the covenant and yet saying, I shall have peace. The idea is that of a self-righteous person. In essence, I am of Israel. God has called us as his people, and therefore I can do as I please and still find peace. In this, Moses says, Lo Yoveh, Yehovah, Seloach, Lo, no willing, Yehovah, pardon to him. It is the sin of presumption, and it is an intolerable sin. As such, and using the same word as Moses, the Lord asked the question of Israel through Jeremiah the prophet. How shall I pardon, that word there, how shall I pardon you for this? Your children have forsaken me and sworn by those that are not gods. When I had fed them to the full, then they committed adultery and assembled themselves by troops in the harlot's houses. They were like well-fed lusty stallions, everyone neighed after his neighbor's wife. Shall I not punish them for these things, says the Lord? And shall I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? David committed great sin before the Lord, and yet he was forgiven for what he did. It is the exact same sin that Jeremiah addressed in his words, adultery. And yet when confronted with his sin, David not only acknowledged it, but he was filled with remorse over his actions. Psalm 51 records it. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. David not only acknowledged his sin, but he took the time to openly confess it to the world through a psalm. And for 2,900 years now, his example has been set forth for all of us to know what is acceptable to the Lord and what is not. The Lord cannot deal graciously with one who sins presumptuously against him. Rather, Moses says, verse 20 continues, for then the anger of the Lord and his jealousy would burn against that man. The Hebrew is active and alive. It is emphatic. For then will smoke nostril Jehovah and his anger in the man, the he. The smoking nostril reminds the hearer of the smoke and terrifying display of fire upon Mount Sinai. It's the only other time that this word has been used. Here's what it says. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke, that word, because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. Remember, the law does not bring reconciliation. The law brings wrath. 
because by the law is the knowledge of sin. You can't commit a sin unless there's a law, and when you violate the law, there's sin. And that's the anger of the Lord being shown on the mountain at any possible violation of his law. I am holy, you are not. You must obey my commandments, or this will be poured out on you. That's the, the figure that you should get in your head. A violation of the law can be forgiven through the allowances of the law, but there is no allowance that can overcome the presumptuous heart that will not abase itself before the Lord. The Day of Atonement was given for forgiveness, but it called for abasement. Here's what it says in Leviticus 23. For any person who is not afflicted in soul on that same day shall be cut off from his people. Any person who does any work on that same day, that person I will destroy from among his people. You shall do no manner of work. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations and all your dwellings. It shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest, and you shall afflict your souls on the ninth day of the month at evening. From evening to evening, you shall celebrate your Sabbath. Now, before I go on, would anybody know if they did this or not, if they afflicted themselves? They'd have no idea. Maybe the family. If the guy lived alone, nobody would know. It is something totally and solely between the person and the Lord. It is something that a presumptuous soul would say, I don't need to do this. That's the point. The word twice translated as afflict signifies to bow down or afflict in humility. If this provision of the law cannot be met, there is no remedy for that person. Thus, the Lord's nostril will smoke. Verse 20 continues, and every curse that is written in this book would settle on him. Again, the words are very poignant, purposeful, and emphatic. And will lie in him every, the oath, the written, in the book, the this. The word ravats or lie comes from a primitive root signifying to crouch on all four legs like a recumbent animal. That's James Strong evaluation of it. As such, it is as if an entire weight of every oath of the law has lain upon him. Rather than the curse itself, though, it is the oath, Allah, referred to in verses 12 and 14, that is sworn and leads to the curse. Again, Jeremiah gives the sense of such a man's thoughts who is filled with this type of presumption. It says in Jeremiah 23, they continually say to those who despise me, the Lord has said, you shall have peace. And to everyone who walks according to the dictates of his own heart, they say, no evil shall come upon you. Rather than peace and no evil, there will be terror and the oaths of the law coming upon them. But let us not remove ourselves too far from the one who is willing to take this upon himself to allow those who are willing to come to God through him in humility. Here's what it says in Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The weight of the oaths of the law alighted upon Christ for those who will afflict their souls before the Lord. For those of Israel who rejected this, the Lord, through Moses, has another word. Verse 20 going on. And the Lord would blot out his name from under heaven. Rather than under heaven, the Hebrew reads under the heavens. It means that there will be no remembrance of that person on the earth. His name will be cut off and the line that issues from him will end. 
As such, it will be as if he never existed. Verse 21, and the Lord would separate him from all the tribes of Israel for adversity. The word translated as adversity is evil, ra. The Lord will bring evil upon the man who so presumptuously acts against him. Where he finds peace in himself and his actions, they are, in fact, perverse and contrary to the law. Such a person would be set apart from all the tribes, meaning cut off from the inheritance and the covenant promises. For such a person, there can be no forgiveness. His doom will hang over his head until he is destroyed. The thought is reflective of the words of Jeremiah towards those who had acted in this way before the Lord. Jeremiah again, 44. Behold, I will watch over them for adversity and not for good. And all the men of Judah who are in the land of Egypt shall be consumed by the sword and by famine, and there is an end to them. Again, the promise is explicitly stated that it will be, verse 21 continues, according to all the curses of the covenant that are written in this book of the law. Moses' words are again fixed, firm, focused, and emphatic. Kekol alot habarit haketuvah besefer haTorah hazeh. According to all oaths, the covenant, the written in book, the Torah, the this. And again, it says oaths, not curses. Not all of the curses will fall upon any particular person, but all of the oaths leading to the curses will. That which is written in the book of the law shall be performed according to the word of the Lord who so inspired it through Moses. So far in these past few verses, it is spoken of an individual, he, himself, his, I, my, him, that man, and so on. Now, with the coming verse, that begins to change. Verse 22, so that the coming generation of your children who rise up after you, it is referring to many years in the future, certainly after the Babylonian exile and even at the time after the Roman exile. The generation of children who would rise up would see the effect of the presumptuous generation and understand. Verse 22 continues, and the foreigner who comes from a far land. Nothing is more certain in the historical record than this. We just read two of them, right? Jameson Fawcett Brown and Mark Twain. It may be that Jews saw the land and spoke among one another of its state, but the record of foreigners describing the desolation of the land is abundant. Of these groups, they, verse 22 continues, would say when they see the plagues of that land, the word is maka, coming from the word naka, meaning to strike. It is the word used to describe the stripes laid upon the back of a person who is punished according to the law. As such, it is as if the land has been beaten with a massive rod, crushing down buildings, houses, fields, and so on. The sense should be that of welts laid upon the land in anger and in fury. Verse 22 going on, and the sicknesses which the Lord has laid on it. Ve'et and diseases which has made sick Yehovah on it. It is a new word, tachalu. It signifies a malady or a disease. It will be found only five times, but the most notable instance that gives the sense of what it signifies is probably that of 2 Chronicles chapter 21, referring to the crummy king Jehoram. Here's what it says about this guy. And it comes to pass from days to days, and at the time of the going out of the end of two years, his bowels have gone out with his sickness, and he dies of severe diseases. That word there. And his people have not made for him a burning like the burning of his fathers. Okay, I'm going to stop and give you a little levity in the middle of a somber sermon. Anytime I go to the 
hospital, which isn't much in the past year and a half because of COVID. But anytime I go to the hospital, which uh, Linda is a champion at this because she's been there 5,000 times to have every part of her body replaced, I always find a verse in the Bible that matches what part of the body is being worked on. So she gets a new hip, I go to, um, what is it, Samson, he beat them hip and thigh, right? Or if you're having your heart worked on, I'll that's easy to find one on hearts in there, right? Or if you're having your knee replaced, Jim is good at that one. Jim, here's a verse about the knee. And I always try to give them something to smile about in their misery, okay? I had a friend, actually two friends that I had to read this passage to because it's the only one about the entrails. And they went in there for, you know, they got their colostomy or whatever it's called. And uh, they're, they're getting inspected, whatever that's called. Colonoscopy, thank you. And then they find out there's something in there and they got to have surgery. And I say, do you want me to read the verse from the Bible? And they always say yes. And it's like, oh, my gosh. Okay, that's your levity. Thus, the sicknesses of the land probably refers to the blights and plagues that affected the water, the foliage, and so on. It probably also refers to the sicknesses that became endemic in the land during this period. And this is true. The land eventually was filled with malaria, trachoma, smallpox, cholera, dysentery, tuberculosis, high infant mortality, and so on. What is noteworthy is that these are attributed to the hand of the Lord. The land became unusable for certainly two reasons. The first is that Israel was destroyed, and thus the land was too. It became uninhabited by them because they were exiled from it. But the second reason is equally important. The land was given to Israel. While they were in exile, if the land became productive, it would have been, as it is today, coveted after. As such, there would have been people who settled in and made it productive. This did not happen. Due to its history, as well as the strategic location, it was fought over, but it was never really occupied in the sense that it became productive. The Lord ensured that the land would someday be filled by Israel once again. And this is exactly what both the Bible prophesied of, as well as what has occurred. Of this land of desolation, the people would exclaim, verse 23, the whole land is brimstone, salt, and burning. Think of Mark Twain. Exactly what he said. Kafarit vamelach serafah hal artsa. Brimstone and salt burning all land. The words give the sense of heat, anguish, and desolation upon the land. Nothing is productive and nothing apart from the Lord's favor could make it so. Because of this, verse 23 continues, it is not sown, nor does it bear, nor does any grass grow there. The words now speak of a lack of rain. No one will sow if there is no rain to cause seed to grow. More than that, nothing hardy will even sprout up on its own. And more, even grass, which needs but a short span of rain to come forth, will fail to grow. The land itself will be left ruined because the rains have ceased. It will be, verse 23 continues, like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim. The destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah is explicitly stated in Genesis 19. But the destruction of Adma and Zeboim is implied. They were in the same area, and the same fate came upon them. Here, Moses introduces the word mafeha. It is a noun used to describe the state of being overthrown. What will occur in the land of promise is directly equated to what occurred with these four cities. Verse 23 continues, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and his wrath. Asher hafak Yehovah be'apo uba hamato, which overthrew Yehovah in nostril and in heated rage. The words are anthropomorphic. 
ascribing the actions of a raging man to that of the Lord. The sense is that his nostril is fuming and smoking, his forehead is flushed red with anger, and he lashes down upon the land in his fury. What is being done in these verses is to equate the entire land to the area around the Dead Sea. In Genesis 13.10, that land was described as idyllic. Here's what it said. And Lot lifted his eyes and saw all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go toward Zoar. That is comparable to the description of Canaan by Moses. Here's what it said in Deuteronomy 8. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs that flow out of valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. So the land of the Jordan area, the basin was destroyed by God, Sodom and Gomorrah. And Moses is now saying, this is what this beautiful land you're going into will look like when I'm done with it. You see the comparison. But more, there's something interesting. If you have missed this video, you should go watch it. Sergio and Rhoda, a year or so ago, got a call. And they said the Dead Sea itself is blooming. It's never happened before. And they drove down there and it looked like paradise. It looked like paradise, and they got this on film, and they did a video of it. And guess what? They showed um, Yossi, the guy that I walked, Sergio and I and Yossi walked from Jericho to Jerusalem. They showed it to Yossi, and he didn't even know what he was looking at. He said, where is that? He'd been there how many times in his life? And he couldn't recognize it because it was so beautiful. The land is coming back to life because God has reestablished Israel in preparation for the coming of Christ. However, just as the Lord destroyed the area of the Dead Sea, turning it into an absolute wasteland, so he will overthrow and ruin the good land of Canaan. In this, verse 24, all nations would say, why has the Lord done so to this land? What is apparent is that what has happened will be ascribed to the Lord, meaning the one true God. Even if those who ask this don't know what his name actually is, this will be perfectly evident simply because the land was fully inhabited from Dan to Beersheba. There will be and there remains to this day evidences throughout the entire land that it was once filled to the brim with people. If you want to see places that they haven't even started digging, just go on Google Earth and zoom in over the Bashan area where nobody lives and they don't do any digging. You can see ruins everywhere. Everywhere you can see where these people live. From Dan to Beersheba, the land was full. You can go out into the most remote desert of Israel and you'll see old places where people lived. It was full of people. When people look at the empty cities and lands that once bustled throughout Asia, South America, and elsewhere, the same question arises. What tragedy did God bring upon this place? We ascribe to God the ruin of such places because we know that the hand of God brings such ruin. In the case of Israel, anyone who went through it would see the devastation and know that God, the Lord, had brought about this disaster. In this, the next question arises. Verse 24 going on, what does the heat of this great anger mean? What heat, the nostril, the great, the this. In whatever way someone perceives the anger of the Lord, it is usually an anthropomorphic thought. As such, to think of him raging with fire and smoke coming out of his nostrils and stomping on the land is not an uncalled-for image. 
I remember when we had Hurricane Charlie go south of us and it went up through uh, Port Charlotte or whatever it was and it came kind of and went through Arcadia. And my brother, he works for the county, was asked to go and assist. And when he came back, he drove through the path of that hurricane. And he said it looked like a giant had stomped on the land, crushed everything. That's the idea we're getting here. The question for such a mental image is, what does it mean? Verse 25, then people would say, because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. The words in these verses are restated, but still closely repeated by Jeremiah. Jeremiah 22, and many nations will pass by this city, and everyone will say to his neighbor, why has the Lord done so to this great city? Then they will answer, because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord their God and worshiped other gods and served them. Even in Israel's exile, there have remained people in the land. It has never been completely barren. Little groups of people were left during the Babylonian exile, as is recorded in Scripture. And small pockets of people remained in the land ever since the exile by the Romans, as history has shown. These would be the people who knew the history and passed it down, or who had a Bible handy and knew the recorded history. As such, they could easily explain the events recorded in this verse, thus fulfilling the prophecy of the verse in the process. A covenant was made, the promises of blessings and abundance are clearly evidenced in the once filled and productive land, and yet the land is now destroyed. The covenant was violated by the people, and the desolation was brought about by the offended Lord. What is perfectly evident is that these words indicate both a physical as well as a spiritual state of ruin. The land is clearly destroyed, but the destruction of the land is based on the ruination of the people. The covenant is violated, and the resulting curses have fallen upon both the land and the inhabitants. It is a clear indication that Israel, being cut off from its land, means that Israel has been cut off from the Lord. This should give Israel of today pause. If they have been cut off from the Lord, they are cut off from the Lord. Their restoration to the land is an act of grace, not an acknowledgement that they are suddenly right with him. Such is not the case. If they would simply take the blinders off before reading the word, they could come to no other conclusion. But until they are willing to see that the narrative is not about them, this will never happen. This is painfully evident from what got them into the pickle in the first place. Verse 26, for they went and served other gods and worshiped them, gods that they did not know and that he had not given to them. The covenant forbid Israel to do exactly what they did. There is little in their recorded history that does not include this truth. They rejected the Lord and served every possible God but him. At times, they worshiped him by using fashion gods as well. In both, they were guilty of forsaking the word of the Lord and the precepts of the covenant. Jeremiah clearly speaks of the fulfillment of Moses' words. He says, and it will be when you say, why does the Lord our God do all these things to us? Then you shall answer them, just as you have forsaken me and served foreign gods in your land, so you shall serve aliens in a land that is not yours. All of these things are true and they are undeniable. But this doesn't explain the transition from the singular person in the earlier verses to the plural. You, plural, they, their, them, and so on. Why did Moses do this? The answer is found throughout the writings and the prophets, and it can be summed up with an exacting example from 2 Kings 21. 
Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. And then from 2 Kings 21, a little further down, and I will not make the feet of Israel wander any more from the land which I gave their fathers, only if they are careful to do according to all that I have commanded them and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. But they paid no attention, and Manasseh seduced them to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. And then finally, from 2 Kings 23, Nevertheless, the Lord did not turn from the fierceness of his great wrath. This is after the coming of Josiah, who tried to get the people back to the Lord, with which his anger was aroused against Judah because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. And the Lord said, I will also remove Judah from my sight, as I have removed Israel, and will cast off this city, Jerusalem, which I have chosen, and the house of which I said, my name shall be there. The king, the king is the leader of the people. In the departure of the king from the Lord, the people will naturally follow suit. If anybody doesn't see that every four-year cycle in the United States of America, you're not paying attention. The people follow the leader, and the nation goes downhill or uphill by the leading of that individual. Unfortunately, that's true at this time. Unfortunately. The two are inextricably tied together in a unique way. As such, and because of this truth, Moses continues with the words of those who see what has come upon Israel. Verse 27, Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against this land to bring on it every curse that is written in this book. Here the word curse is finally correct. Can you see how important it is to not translate different words the same way if you've got a different context? It's really important to know what is going on. The oath leads to the curse. The turning of the king brings about the turning of the people. And in their turning, every curse that is written in the book is brought upon the land and thus the people. Moses exactingly predicts what will occur as well as what the verbal response from the people will be when they are asked about the matter. But more, he implies that those who convey what has occurred will, in fact, have a copy of the book to confirm what has been stated by the Lord. It isn't that they had to guess. The preservation of the word of the Lord is implied in what is stated right here in this verse. And that same word is being conveyed to those who had asked the question, meaning the children of the future and the foreigner from the far land. But who is it that will pay heed to the words of predictive prophecy that are so perfectly fulfilled in the people and in the land? It sure wasn't those in whom the words were fulfilled. Verse 28, and the Lord uprooted them from their land. And uprooted them, Jehovah, from their ground. Here is a new word, natash. It signifies to pull or pluck up or to uproot. It will be used frequently by Jeremiah. Instead of land, Moses says ground in this verse, thus making a play on the words. They were uprooted as a plant is pulled from the ground, and this was, verse 28 continues, in anger, in wrath, and in great indignation. Be'af gadol, in nostril, and in heated rage, and in indignation great. 
the words are exactingly repeated by, once again, Jeremiah. I myself will fight against you with an outstretched hand and with a strong arm, even in anger and fury and great wrath. Again, the words are anthropomorphic. It is as if a man is in a garden, raging and tearing up the plants with his nostril fuming and his forehead burning with anger. He pulls up the plants, verse 28 continues, and casts them into another land as it is this day. Here the word is eretz, or land. They are pulled up from their ground and cast, not planted, upon another land. With no roots, they will not prosper and can be moved without any effort to or from the lands around them, just as has happened to the Jewish people throughout history. The words kayom hazeh, or according to day, the this, mean that during all of their time in exile and during all the time that the land is barren and destroyed, the saying will be said, this is what happened, this is why it happened, and this is the result that you now see even today. The shame of the statement is intended to reach out around the world and explain why Israel is broken up into little pockets of miserable people in the lands of their exile. As such, verse 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. The Hebrew consists of fewer words. Literally, it reads, the hidden to Jehovah our God, and the uncovered, meaning exposed, to us and to our children until forever to do all words, the Torah, the this. The number of ideas as to what is being said here is very lengthy. I want you to know that. Many scholars abuse the text as it is written. One thing seems likely, though, is that the words include the thought of going into captivity. The reason is that the word translated as uncovered or revealed is used very often elsewhere and is translated as captive. The reason why is when you're a captive, you're uncovered. They've taken your garments and they're walking you naked through the land, which was the standard procedure. The reason is because when one goes into captivity, he is exposed or uncovered. Jeremiah, who has used Moses' words time and time again today, uses this word in that way numerous times, such as Jeremiah 13. The cities of the south shall be shut up, and no one shall open them. Judah shall be carried away captive. That word, all of it. It shall be wholly carried away captive. Think of the word uncovered. I'll read it again. The cities of the south shall be shut up, and no one shall open them. Judah shall be carried away uncovered, all of it it shall be wholly carried away uncovered. Grammatically, the words to do could refer to either the Lord or the people. And so it must be questioned who the subject is. I'm going to read you two possibilities that I sat down and translated, okay? The first is, the hidden to Jehovah our God and the uncovered to us and to our children until forever for the Lord to do all words of this Torah. The Lord's action. Got it? Or you could say the hidden to Jehovah our God and the uncovered to us and to our children until forever for us to do all the words of this Torah. Which one makes sense? Actually both, doesn't it? We'll talk about it. Unlike the rest of the entire chapter, this verse has been presented in the first person plural. We Israel. Moses includes himself in the words, which is a very rare occurrence in the book of Deuteronomy. 
without being dogmatic about it, because I don't want to get bit, especially because nobody else even considers this. I would suggest that this may be a double entendre. One meaning then would be that the verse is speaking about the intentions of the Lord. The Lord is concealed. He has hidden things concerning the future, even in the word itself. And we know that's true. But he has also given explicit instructions in it, which are on the surface, knowable and expected. Hence, he says, that we may do all the words of this law. As the law is revealed, it is expected to be followed. But the law, through the prophets, will continue to reveal more. Eventually, those prophecies will align with their prophetic fulfillment. As such, the words of the law itself will no longer be hidden. For example, Paul's words in Romans 10 verse 8 show that Deuteronomy 30 verse 14 was a reference to Jesus Christ and to his work. It took time to meet up with the prophecy. Everybody see that? He's now telling you this is what's going on. The second meaning would then be that the hidden things are the prerogative of the Lord. But the captivity, meaning being exposed, belongs to Israel forever because they are bound to the law of which they cannot do. Everybody knows that Israel can't do the law. Nobody can do the law. However, at the time of Moses, in the hidden things of the Lord, they are included all of his doing all of the words of the Torah. Eventually, he, Jesus Christ, came and he did all the words of the Torah. The Lord accomplished it. Does everybody see now the double entendre? If this is the correct interpretation, and I think it is, it is summed up in Jesus' words. Matthew 5, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. As such, the choice belongs to all the people, even those not under the law. The reason is that the law is God's standard. Fulfilling the law is God's mark of perfection. Whether one is under law or not, perfection is the standard. None apart from the law have the law to attempt to attain perfection. And none under the law have the ability to attain perfection through the law. What all men need is Christ Jesus' perfection, who fulfilled the law. In the Hebrew of this verse, there are special points above the words to us and to our children. They are known as puncta extraordinaria or extraordinary punctuation. It is not known what their meaning is, but we can now speculate that this is exactly what is being referred to, meaning Israel's permanent inability to meet the demands of the law and for them to look to the Lord in place of it for their justification and their righteousness. And this is what all people are to do. Surprisingly, God has made a way available to us to be reconciled to himself. I say surprisingly because he was under no obligation to do so. And in order to do so, he would have to do the incredible. The process would be painful, abasing, and impossible for many to even believe. But he did it. The Lord God Almighty the creator of heaven and earth, did the unimaginable for his creatures. 
Let us not turn away from so great a salvation. Let us come to Christ and forever sing praises to the God to whom belong the secret things. This is what I would ask of you today. The whole point of everything in the law of Moses and of the prophets who speak further the law to the people of Israel is to look for something better. Something better. Look to the Lord Even in the Old Testament, we can see this week after week. We know that this is true. The man who does the things of the law will live by them. And for the next 1,500 years of recorded history of Israel, nobody did the things of the law because they're there in their graves, rotted away. Everybody got that? David's tomb was there at the time of Acts. There he is. He prophesied that he wouldn't see corruption, so it can't be speaking of him. It's got to be speaking of somebody else. And I'm telling you who it is. Every one of them died because they had sin in them. And I always bring up the caveat because somebody's going to email me. Yes, I know that Enoch before the law and Elijah during the time of the law both did not die, but that's for a special reason. They're coming back soon enough and they will die. Okay. But other than that, everybody under the law dies. All right. They all die because they have sin in them. The Lord is the one who could fulfill the law. And so what did he do? He came born of a virgin born of God. So he's the God man, fully God, fully man. He lived under the law that he gave to Israel without sin. So he's capable of taking away sin. He lives out the law. He's qualified to take away sin. And then he gave his life up in exchange for our sin. This is what Jesus Christ was willing to do. God himself abased himself in front of all of humanity in order to reconcile us to himself and bring us to a happy state once again. Thank God for Jesus Christ. If you have never called on him, please believe this simple gospel. Christ died for your sins. Christ was buried. Christ rose again. If you believe that in your heart, you will be saved. God will know it. Call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. Romans 10, 9, and 10. You got 1 Corinthians 15, 3, and 4, which I said Romans 10, 9, and 10. And then if that happens, Ephesians 1, 13, and 14, God says that he will seal you with his Holy Spirit. It is a guarantee. You can never again lose your salvation because you're no longer being imputed sin. And sin is what separates you from God. If you're not being imputed sin, you are saved eternally. Thank God for Jesus Christ. Our closing verse comes from Isaiah 45. It is verse three. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places that you may know that I, the Lord, who call you by your name, am the God of Israel. Who was he speaking to at the time? Anybody know? Begins with a C, ends with Iris. Anybody? Cyrus. Cyrus. That's right. You got it. Good job. Next week is Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 through 10. This is where your point of righteousness will start. The sermon is entitled, The Lord Your God Will Circumcise Your Heart. That'll be our 87th Deuteronomy sermon. There it is. We were talking about that before class, or I mean before uh, the uh, prophecy update, weren't we? You're talk about the Jews, and I said that, you know, we made the comparison about being circumcised in the heart. There it is, right in the Old Testament. I said the Song of Moses, but it's not. It's in Deuteronomy 30. Shame on me. Okay, um, the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. But he also has expectations for you as he prepares you for entrance into his land of promise. And so follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you, okay? Now, I've got a very simple question. Don't say, oh, I always say that. This is a very simple one. This is so simple that I bet everybody's going to get it. And so when I ask this, the first person that answers 
gets this gets a flight with me, I'm not going to give him my plane, but I'm going to let you fly in the YF-22 with me today, okay? The secret things belong to the Lord. What are they known as in the New Testament? Who said that? Jim, mysteries. Okay, I'm taking you out for a flight today, buddy. All right. All right, we got a poem and we'll take communion. The secret things. The Lord would not spare him, for then the anger of the Lord and his jealousy would burn against that man, even time seven. And every curse that is written in this book would settle on him, and the Lord would blot out his name from under heaven. And the Lord would separate him from all the tribes of Israel for adversity, according to all the curses of the covenant that are written in this book of the law, so shall it be. So that the coming generation of your children who rise up after you and the foreigner who comes from a far land would say, when they see the plagues of that land and the sickness which the Lord has laid on it that day, the whole land is brimstone, salt and burning. It is not sown, nor does it bear, nor does any grass grow there. Like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and his wrath he did not spare. All nations would say, why has the Lord done so to this land? What does the heat of this great anger mean? We don't understand. Then people would say, because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord God of their fathers, and you understand, which he made with them when he brought them out of Egypt the land. For they went and served other gods and worshipped them, gods they did not know, and that he had not given to them, and him they forsook. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against this land to bring on every curse that is written in this book. And the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger. He did display in wrath and in great indignation and cast them into another land as it is this day. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those which are revealed of which we saw belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. Lord God, turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true, and we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. And we will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you. To us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, Thank you that you have the secret things that you reserve to yourself, but you have revealed things to us as well, and that you continue to do so as people study your word and look at it and think on it and contemplate it. New revelations come from it even to this day, 3,500 years later. What a treasure it is. What a marvel it is. We thank you for your precious and sacred word, and we thank you for Jesus, who is the final and full revealing of everything that you have for us to know. Everything ultimately comes back to the person of Jesus who came and lived that life that we cannot live. Thank you for Jesus Christ, our Lord, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.